Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. Fourth year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. DM Wen. Hi, DM. Hi, Dr. Parks. And second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. A fine day to you, Aaron. <laughs> and to you as well, Alan. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to talk about frontline trauma during COVID. And we, ha- we are very uh, um, happy to have as our guests people that have experienced that firsthand. And there's three of, three of them. So I'm just going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, why don't we start with you, Richard? Yeah, so I'm Richard Loftus. I'm a full clinical professor of medicine at UC Riverside, and I was the former founding associate program director of the internal medicine residency at Eisenhower Health and worked as a hospitalist during the onset of COVID. Uh, So worked as an inpatient provider, so was on the front lines. Uh, Also work in uh, COVID science, doing uh, uh, studies of therapies for COVID. Thank you. Uh, Rob. Hi, uh, my name is Rob Mempin. I'm a fifth year uh, pulmonary critical care fellow at UCLA, rotating at also the West Los Angeles VA and the all of the UCLA County Medical Center. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Elian. Hi, I'm Elian Koffler. I'm a third year internal medicine resident at Eisenhower Medical Center in Rancho Mirage, California. Um, I'm about to finish my my final year of residency and over the last year i was working on the COVID 19 wards uh, and in the icu thank you for joining us now i just kind of get the ball rolling and when you think of trauma and COVID 19 and the experience you had dealing with COVID 19 treating folks with COVID 19 what is your first thoughts that come into your mind as far as traumatic experiences uh richard Well, I I think that we've started already see some literature on this from colleagues about how many healthcare workers have experienced post-traumatic stress symptoms like nightmares, anxiety, avoiding triggering situations, um, finding intrusive thoughts, you know, because they can't get the experiences they've had on the wards out of their minds. A lot of us on the front lines were dealing with Um, scores of critically sick patients. We were dealing with sicker patients than we were accustomed to. Um, At my new institution in New York, um, the primary care doctors became the hospitalists and the hospitalists became the critical care attendings because there were so many cases in the hospital. And I think many people in healthcare systems across the United States found themselves dealing with a higher level of illness in patients than they were used to. They were dealing with sometimes multiple deaths of patients per day. They were having to help families say goodbye over iPads. And it just felt like a nightmare. It felt, I think for a lot of us, like we were living in some kind of unbelievable nightmare, except it was real. What was the toughest thing for you? Uh, For me, actually, as an educator, worrying that one of my residents would get hurt. Rob. So I think initially, uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, there's just so much fear about the unknown. Mostly, we didn't sign up to treat such a contagious disease. And we were all afraid as to, how, is the PPE going to work? Will we have enough of it? And or, or, or am I going to get sick? Am I get, gonna get any of my loved ones sick? 
And once we realize that PPE does work and, and, and as long as we wear it, we should be protected. It, it became more of just an exercise and sometimes where you just felt very powerless to in everything that we're trying to do in some patients uh, to give all the supportive care that we need that we could provide some patients just wouldn't recover and it just became very demoralizing. Now we've seen some studies that have shown, uh, it, it, surveys that have shown anywhere from, you know, six to 22% that I was seeing for PTSD for healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers. And um, I saw one, a couple studies of substance abuse. And again, the, the one study was about 6.8, another one was 42%, which seems crazy high. Uh, did did you know did it uh it rob anybody that you felt was at risk for uh, uh you know some of these or major depression um generalized anxiety that kind of thing and um did you notice that kind of impact that uh, where it would it would be even to PTSD post traumatic stress disorder yeah absolutely and a lot of of my co-fellows and residents who are kind of already uh at just emotionally and mentally exhausted not in it, in addition to just physically exhausted, sweating under all these PPE, doing procedures, stuck in these rooms all day. And you see these patients, you just see these fear in their eyes when before all of this, they're just pretty much normal. And, and they're, they're often just too young to just, just die alone in an ICU. And it's just unfair. And we, we do everything we can and just more, and just what's more heartbreaking more than anything is they're often just dying alone. And fortunately, I don't think I had the uh, I had the uh, the misfortune of of other hospitals where their just resources were low. But um, I think compared to other hospitals uh, of just just other colleagues who worked at other hospitals where there just wasn't enough people or enough rooms or enough nursing where these patients would often sometimes just pass away and nobody would know. I think on the, as a psychiatry fellow, um, I saw things going on uh, or hearing about the anxiety, trauma and everything secondhand from my hospitalist friends. So my friends who are hospitalists reached out to me knowing I'm a psychiatrist um, and I think this is happening to a lot of psychiatrists that was happening to a lot of psychiatrists during COVID. In fact, um, there's a psychiatrist, Dr. Masood, who started a kind of helpline specifically for doctors who just needed an outlet um, to, to vent, um, get some immediate help. Uh, because one of the issues we've seen is that doctors didn't have infrastructure in place to immediately address some of this trauma and anxiety. I think for me as a frontline provider and also as an educator responsible for the training of frontline providers, what occurred to me, you know, seeing the reports from China, from Italy, from countries that were a little bit further into it than we were, as I, I could appreciate exactly how bad the stress levels were going to get. We were, I felt like we were going to get hit by a tsunami. 
And, um, you know, at Eisenhower, we actually, I, I happen to have been the chair of the Graduate Medical Education Wellness Committee. So I took the well-being of the residents who were in the hospital quite seriously. It was part of my job. So um, we actually worked on a project to try to introduce some mental health supportive measures and community building rather early. Um, so we were doing those things, you know, right in March, April, you know, uh, I think we got started in April, but Dr. Koffler was really the one who led that project. So I'll let her talk about what we did. Yeah, so yeah, last year towards the end of March, early April, we launched this project to intervene, uh, to help out with the, you know, with the stress uh, among the healthcare workers at our hospital. And we started this program being uh, via Zoom room chats that we called the wellness morning offering. Uh, just to kind of maintain mindfulness in the face of this traumatic experience. Um, so what we did was Dr. Loftus, myself, and Sandra Gonzalez, who's our GME director, uh, we reached out to some, some people that we knew, uh, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, uh, psychologists, and meditation teachers. And from there, um, we were even able to recruit more people. Uh, Larry Yang, who is a nationally renowned uh, meditation teacher uh, from the Bay Area actually helped us probably uh, collect at least half of the teachers that participated in this program. And each one of them actually volunteered their time uh, for this. Uh, the, we had people from locally, the Coachella Valley, uh, there were teachers in the Bay Area, uh, on the on the East Coast, and even in Portugal and Sri Lanka. So we really had to coordinate uh, timing-wise. But these um, sessions started every morning, 6.30 to 6.50 a.m., lasted 20 minutes, right before the beginning of the shift. And it was great for a while. We had a good turnout. Uh, but after a few days, you know, towards the end of the second week, People were starting to not show up and uh, we got some feedback that maybe doing a, an evening session, adding an evening session would help. So we started doing 8 p.m. sessions three times a week and um, it, was a, a, it was a better turnout, but I think still we didn't get the turnout that we thought we would get. And uh, what we learned from that, I think, is that in healthcare workers, there's kind of like a stigma in uh, participating in these types of wellness events. Elian, um, a, a lot of times when it, throughout medical school and residency, you know, during various wellness groups, there's sort of the echoes of, oh, they're, they're making me take time out of my day to learn about how I should have more time in my day when they're the ones that are making sure I don't have time in my day. Or they're, you know, or why don't they just pay me more instead of doing this? Or I'd rather have the free time and I'll go do yoga myself. Did you get those kind of things? Did you feel that way? And if if not, what made this special and different than other required didactics? Um, or sorry, learnings. Uh, didactics is a strange word we use in medicine. Yeah. So Lecture, lectures, I mean, you mean, Alan? Yeah, I guess I didn't feel that way because I was a part of, um, you know, this project and getting it together. I participated in every single one of the sessions. Um, but for my colleagues that didn't, some people said, well, I don't like this stuff or that's not really for me. I'd rather do something else. I'd rather exercise. Um, but I'm not, I'm not really sure if still we were able to intervene um, in the best way. 
I don't know how else we would have done it differently. I think it's so interesting because I was reading an article about, you know, burnout was incredibly high among physicians even before the pandemic started. And burnout is more a marker of, uh, you know, just the system itself, how the medical system has changed and the burden that it's placed on um, healthcare workers. And yet it almost seems like with the pandemic, it caused a revitalization of healthcare workers. We, you know, we were appreciated by the community for the first time. Like it, all these like, you know, free stuff started coming out and like, we're like, thank you for your service, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, I think it, it, it almost helped. I got the sense that, you know, burnout kind of decreased during that period. Nobody was talking about it as much. Um, and it was actually like the pandemic actually helped. I, I wonder, kind of right, DM. Um, there, there was a definitely a sense of unity. I remember there was one day at the beginning of the pandemic where there was an earthquake, and suddenly all of us went from working on our computers, doing our notes, to going outside. And we never would have gone outside at that time. But there was a church group that was there was there were tons of people out there in their cars, and they had coordinated with a local radio, and they all turned on the radio, and they were singing for us and thanking us, and it was so beautiful. All of us cried. I wonder how um, things are, I, I agree with you, DM. It, it kind of felt in the medical field a little bit like post 9-11, specifically for doctors. Um, but I, I wonder how that's going to play out as, you know, numbers subside. Um, what, what are we going to be left with when doctors, you know, hang up their coat now and that adrenaline rush of push, 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 solidarity, getting support from the community just dies away and doctors are left with the trauma. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's going to be an aftermath and I don't think we've even started to deal with it yet because we're only just getting into the tail end of the crisis. We're only just getting to the point where some hospitals for the first time, I think our hospital here locally now in upstate New York is back to no COVID, maybe one COVID patient in the hospital. Um, so, you know, we're, we're only just at the moment where the crisis is over. And I, I do think that a lot of healthcare workers saw, you know, community support, which is one of the four factors that people look at when they look at stress and burnout and healthcare workers and COVID. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot of that visible support early, but then surge number two happened and then surge number three happened and then surge number four in some places happened. And, you know, it's almost a year later and we're not seeing people out in the, you know, front of the hospital, you know, singing to us like we did. So, you know, all we had was the grind of more horrifying preventable cases. Um, but I think Jim is onto something, you know, one of the studies by uh, Ari Schechter's group at Columbia found that although, you know, 57% of their doctors um, and other healthcare workers that they surveyed out of the 700, you know, had definitely symptoms of acute stress and post-traumatic stress symptoms, but 61% of them also said they had an increased sense of purpose because of COVID. So there's pluses and minuses, but I, I think that we had, um, you know, some, some, conditions, as was outlined by our, our intensivists just a few minutes ago, um, of just overwhelming circumstances. And there certainly were hospitals. There were hospitals in Queens where the nurses were wearing garbage bags because they didn't have PPE. 
Um, you know, there was a study that was put out by the University of Washington of 300 healthcare workers that found that, um, you know, there was a great sense of disillusionment in healthcare institutions that, you know, people felt like they didn't have their back, um, that, you know, that they didn't have the PPE, you know, um, and, you know, I've, I've been aware of colleagues who found they had to scramble or acquire their own personal gear because they weren't available. I have a close friend who's an oncology nurse at UCSF, and I would have sent her my supply of N95 masks because as a virologist and frontline COVID doc, I am, you know, I had uh, the ability to purchase a whole bunch for myself for personal use. And I had a bunch sitting in my garage and I would have happily shipped them to my frontline nurse friend. Uh, but she was told that she could not wear protective gear from home. So she instead got this plastic KN95 that didn't fit her face. So we knew that with no fit, it wouldn't protect her very well. And she was seeing cancer patients who some of them came in with suspicious symptoms and we knew she was being exposed. And it was frustrating for me to know that she was working in a condition and she knew this too, where she wasn't really being supplied with protective gear and yet she was on the front lines. And it was frustrating for me knowing that I, even though I had gear I could send to her, she wouldn't be allowed to use it, which seemed crazy to me. And, you know, you can bet that, you know, we're already seeing, I mean, I'm aware of hospitals right now where they're shorthanded with nurses because a lot of the nurses have left and they're not planning to come back. So I think those chickens are coming home to roost now. And I think it'll, this is the time to start dealing with the aftermath. This is where it's really going to start to hit us. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking about frontline trauma during COVID. Uh, Alan, did you have a question? Thanks, Aaron. Um, you know, on one hand, the public talked about how you, uh, Richard, Elian, Rob, your heroes, um, you know, we all in healthcare got treated very well from that small standpoint of, oh, okay, we get, we see signs that tell us we're heroes and there are occasionally some nice um, things people do. On the other hand, the three of you, um, you know, walk around seeing that half the country's not willing to wear masks. You, your hours increased, your stress level increased, you were losing patients left and right. Um, you didn't, you weren't provided with PPE. Um, did you feel a sense of betrayal? Tosha yesterday was talking about kind of a sense of betrayal that um, some people felt during this time. And if so, how did you deal with that? I don't think um, I don't think you can really get into the profession of medicine and just try to really. I think you have to accept people where they are, and I don't think you know people are going to do what they're going to do. And working in the ICU, you accept people who you know overdose on drugs, who who are withdrawing from alcohol, and I don't think you can really approach medicine where like that the patient is where they are in a way wise words rob i i you know i like what you're saying and i think we we become skilled at that as physicians at the same time i i want to poke a little deeper and and really challenge you like i imagine you felt some anger directed somewhere at some point during the pandemic it maybe not towards patients and that's impressive but i think that's rare that, you know, I think often there is some, some what we can inside called counter-transference. Um, where was your anger going? And also I wanna hear um, Richard and Elian's answers to these. 
Um, I don't, I think my anger was more, again, as to what Richard was uh, alluding to, just the lack of support from the hospital system in, in, in where we're going to, in, in how they can help us take care of these patients. I mean, I don't think there's any utility in, in getting angry at, at patients or anything like that. Um, I don't know, maybe I, 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 uh, I, I'm interested in what my colleagues have to say about this, but I, I've never felt that blaming the patient really gets you anywhere. I would say, you know, I, besides being a hospitalist, I used to joke with my residents that I was an imposter hospitalist because I actually trained in primary care and I switched to hospitalist the last couple of years, but I, you know, and I still actually am a primary care provider. Um, and, you know, in primary care, you have to have a pretty good sense of humor because some of your patients are just kind of crazy making and, you know, you just have to sort of like roll with it, you know, like, like Rob was saying, you have to meet the patients where they are, you know, and I think, it sounds bizarre because, you know, certainly many moments during the pandemic, especially early, I had moments of horror, total horror, partly because I could see where things were going and how bad it was going to get. And maybe I knew how bad it was before everyone else around me really started to appreciate that. But humor can be an incredible balm. And I had a moment of sort of the surreal dark humor of, of the COVID pandemic when I was on the COVID ward in June, about two weeks after Memorial Day weekend, and I had a patient who was traveling in our area who came down with COVID, had to be admitted. He contracted COVID wearing no mask at a, a casino in Las Vegas. Um, so came in with oxygen levels of 80%, which for the audience that don't know, like 95 to 100 is normal. So 80 is like, you're gonna die level. And so, um, and he was completely uh, disbelieving that he actually had COVID. So I had to turn the computer around and say, here's your test result. The part where it says positive, that means you're positive for COVID. That's what you have. And then I had to ask him, given how bad his oxygen was, whether he would you know, be willing for us to intubate him, put him on a breathing machine um, to have a machine breathe for him. And um, he said, well, not if it's for COVID, because I've already had two friends get it and they died on the breathing machine. And I said, well, that would be, since you have COVID, that would be the reason I would need to put you on a breathing machine. Um, but, you know, he, even then he said, well, your hospital looks half empty to me. And I, I mean, I, I couldn't help myself. I laughed and I said, well, you know, this hospital's in a resort area that's usually a ghost town in June. We don't usually have very many people in the hospital in June, but I think you're, if you, you realize it, you're on an entire floor right now full of COVID patients. So this is not normal for us. And I promise you, although it may not seem to you like we have very many patients, all the ones that are here have COVID. And of course, things got a lot worse in the Southwest, um, you know, during the summer, like we peaked, I think in early August. Uh, but it just kept climbing and climbing and climbing. But I, I sort of, you know, found myself, you know, even though it was dreadful, I mean, I don't think he understood how close he was to death. And he was, you know, one of these denialists who got himself infected and was critically sick. And part of me was like, 
oh my gosh, I'm going to have to work my patoot off trying to keep this guy alive. And he won't even say thank you because he thinks he, it's all being made up. It's like, I can't make up your oxygen being 80. Here, I'll wear it. See, my oxygen's 100, even with this mask on. Let's see what yours is. Oh, it's 80. That's really bad. Like, I, it was hard to sort of reach him because it was like he didn't even want to believe any of this was real. Right. Um, and, but and you know, there was a part of me in the back corner of my mind that could sort of see the bizarre humor in this. And I think that was sort of a balm in coping with it because part of me could have just felt like I wanted to just scream at him. Um, you know, his case multiplied by thousands and thousands, you know, is I think some of those things that you were referencing, Dr. Atkins, about, you know, could, could we feel mad about it? But I had to just tap into humor at that point. That's well said. I, I think that's that's actually I see some crossover there in terms of what we deal with in psych, where part of the disease of a lot of our patients is not believing they have a disease, right? Schizophrenia and people with delusions. And and this does have some resemblance to that where people were dying and, and saying, I don't know what you're talking about. That doesn't exist. Um, so, you know, you try not to have the anger and they tell you ways to avoid that burnout and feeling certain ways towards your patients who are maybe less respectful towards the treatment you're giving them. And those ways are like, you know, take time for yourself and get lots of sleep and all things that you guys weren't allowed to do. Well, allowed, I don't know. You guys couldn't do because you were busy saving people's lives. Um, Okay, well, let's let's jump to. I'll I'll leave it to um, Richard and Elian to see kind of who wants to jump I, in. Here. Well, I wanted to say something. So we had started talking about you know the burnout that we may be seeing at like blow up coming coming up soon, right? As numbers subside, but I wanted to point out that in March of this year, um, the Washington Post and Kaiser Family Foundation came out with a poll um, where they surveyed healthcare workers that had been on the front line during the pandemic or are on the front line during the pandemic. And they found that roughly three in 10 weighed leaving their profession. And this is already in a state like this article says, um, written by William Wan. Um, this is already in a situation where we know by 2030, the country could be at a loss of, at a deficit of 130,000 doctors and um, 1 million nurses could retire by then. So we're already struggling to keep up with it. And now something has happened where more, more healthcare workers are just burnt out and, and wanting to get up or quit to save themselves really their own sanity, right? Yeah, yeah, you know what? One of the factors that we've seen in studies that leads to uh, things like that uh, trauma experiences during COVID and, and frontline work, healthcare workers that are experiencing trauma is how vulnerable they feel. And part of that is, you know, are they getting the proper PPE? So maybe one of the lessons that we learn is that we really do need to take care of our doctors and nurses and, and healthcare workers, and so they can keep working for us then they can keep what are your guys's thoughts what kind of ideas do you have that could help address some of this for the future and elian i'm at you too because you know one another factor that led to people developing major depression generalized anxiety ptsd and substance abuse uh, disorders was uh, the number and the amount of covid19 related worries the more the worriers the folks that did a lot of worrying did t tend to have those disorders. So what kind of advice, what kind of uh, policy initiatives would you, would you provide? So our hospital, you know, some of the higher ups in the hospital do send out uh, resources. They have set up uh, opportunities with local therapists 
um, you know, as resources for us to reach out uh, to. But like I was saying earlier, I think people aren't using those resources. So in my experience, I would say in, in regards to at least myself and my co-residents, we kind of went through this experience. It was almost like we were in a movie. It was completely surreal. And now it's sort of over with and we feel better. I, I really haven't for the audience, Elion uh, used quotation marks there. Oh, <laughs> she used a hand gesture of quotation marks just for the audience. <laughs> I haven't seen in my my close colleagues at least that burnout, but in my nurse colleagues, I did see that, and I think a big part of that was because we couldn't have visitors, families couldn't come in and see their own families, and the nurses who are really at the bedside most of the time are taking on being basically surrogate family members. And that was very difficult. Some of the strongest nurses that are, you know, in the ICU who are way fiercer than I ever could be are, you know, I saw them break down. And um, I did talk to the ICU uh, nursing director at some point during the pandemic, probably around maybe November or so. And she was uh, working on a project, you know, to help out with this. Um, what do you think, Dr. Loftus? I just wanted to chime in. I think this, in terms of how we can help healthcare workers, I'm especially worried about the nurses, but of course I'm also worried about my physician colleagues, especially the younger colleagues. Um, I think this, the bright side on the horizon is that the Biden administration has put you know, $140 million into the relief package for various programs through CDC and something called the Lorna Breen Initiative, which is named after a doctor who committed suicide after rendering COVID care in New York City and got depressed, um, to try to resource some programs to try to help healthcare workers combat burnout in the wake of all of these COVID experiences. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that will lead to some innovative programs. And that's all the time we have on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about frontline trauma during COVID. Thank you to our special guest, uh, Dr. Richard Loftus. Thank you, Rob. Elian Koffler, thank you very much. Also, Dr. Koffler. Thank you. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Let's get psyched.